Fishing Stories is brought to you by Rep Your Water. For those of you who don't know, we are the co-founders of Rep Your Water, a design-driven apparel company dedicated to providing high-quality gear for anglers everywhere. My current favorite piece in the line is our retro camo merino blend sun hoodie. It breathes incredibly well, blocks the sun on hot days, and is also a perfect base layer. And you drew the camo pattern yourself, which makes it even more unique. Ah, that's right. <laughs> I'm always going to pick our merino socks as my favorite. We have a nice variety of options for styles, and they are excellent for all seasons. Check out the full collection at www.repyourwater.com. I'm Garrison Doctor. And I'm Corinne Doctor. And this is Fishing Stories. And today we have Dr. Andy Danilchuk on the line with us, and it is so great to have you on. Welcome, Andy. Hey, great. It's wonderful to be here. Thanks for having me on. Well, we really appreciate you taking the time. Really excited about this. Um, for those people out there that are not familiar with your work, uh, give us some broad brushstrokes about um, your past and the work that you've done. Uh, where do I start? It's kind of nutty. <laughs> Uh, I'm not, I'm not. So my, I'm a, I'm a professor of fish conservation at university of Massachusetts in Amherst. Uh, and that's kind of my day job. <laughs> so, you know, I, I do some teaching at the university. Um, I have a pretty extensive research program, you know, tied to being on this podcast, you know, I've been focusing on recreational fisheries, uh, as part of my research for about the past 20 some odd years. Um, so, um, and, and a lot of that's based on, you know, movement patterns of recreationally targeted species and a lot of focus on catch and release. Yeah. And if I'm not mistaken, you are the scientist for keep fish wet. So I'm the, I'm the science advisor for keep fish wet. The, so we end up, uh, there's a broad network of scientists that do work on, um, catch and release and, um, and many of them are on the board of directors and there's some science advisors. Uh, but yes, yeah, so I kind of sort of play that role. Um, I'm also a, uh, a research fellow for Bonefish and Tarpon Trust and I don't know, do some other things with the industry here and there. <laughs> so keep, keep um, adding it up. I have yeah. to say, I'm familiar with quite a bit of your work just from knocking around the industry and, you know, all of that and looking at your uh, little resume you sent over before this podcast, I was like, holy smokes, this guy... <laughs> has done some work really awesome man maybe too much but i i don't like as a scientist you know like i grew up fishing right and and i you know that proverbial at the saying that you know fishing sort of saves your life right and it has for me and you know i see me devoting my energy towards the work that i do is kind of like saving the fish that saved me so those fish can save other people you know so um and so i think that's why i don't necessarily think of myself as a typical academic. I am, I have to be. Um, but all these other things that I do in terms of the education and outreach and stuff with Keep a Sweat and stuff with, you know, I, I know I, I hang out with you, Corinne, a lot on the uh, the, the fisheries fund uh, board calls and everything, you know, with AFTA, you know, there's, there's a lot that I do that I, I think has that sort of broader connection in terms of you know, creating better advocates for fish conservation and, and in this space within recreational fisheries. So, Well, yeah. it, it's pretty amazing because I think a lot of people who love fishing and fly fishing, the three of us being three of those, you a lot of people think, well, how can I have a job doing something that I love? You know, there's two camps. There's people that want to work in what they love or they want what they love to be what they do when they're not working. Obviously, the three of us chose <laughs> the former, <laughs> yeah. but... 
I think it's very stereotypical to think like I can work in the industry because I work for a brand or I guide. And it's pretty awesome to see the academic side of it really feed a passion and make the industry better because the work that you have done in so many species has really changed the way people see recreational fishing. Yeah. And that knowledge is power, right? I mean, I'm such a curious angler, right? Anytime we go to a new place, I'm always, you know, if we have a guide, I'm like, okay, but like, where do these fish move? Is this seasonal? When are they here? Do they go here to spawn? Like I have so many questions. And a lot of the time the guides are like, we don't really know. They kind (laughs) of show up, they kind of go away. We're not sure how far they move. And so to have someone that's really actually doing the work to answer those questions, to allow those species to then be hopefully protected and, and have that knowledge is, is really, um, is really awesome. Cool. Well, I'm glad it makes a difference and I'm trying to make a difference. And if it, and if it makes a difference, then great, you know, then I'm doing, I'm exactly. doing things, doing yeah. things right. You know, <laughs> I love it. Well, we're here to talk about, a good fishing story or give you the platform to tell a good fishing story. So we're going to kind of just open this up and uh, see what you got. Cool. No. And um, I'm actually, you know, when you invited me on, I was reflecting on this. It's just a crap ton of stories that I could tell, um, you know, whether domestically or internationally. And um, one that really sticks to mind um, came about really recently I think it was Kurt Dieter that wrote an article. Uh, I forget where he posted it about the fish that you never caught, like that memorable fish that, you know, that experience that, you know, a lot of times, it, yes, we love to catch fish, but it's this holistic experience, right? Whether you catch the fish or not. And, you know, it really, it, it, I always go back to these memories that are burnt in my mind it was back in 2007. Uh, and it was, Right prior to, you know, I was, I was living in the Bahamas at the time. I built a research institute, was doing, doing a ton of work on on bonefish and barracuda and sharks. And Sasha, my wife, you know, we had been married for a couple of years and we we're planning on having kids. And we're like, what do we want to do like before we have kids? And we're like, where do we want to go explore? And uh, her co-advisor for her master's actually had a research project. He, he works on disease transmission between uh, part of his job was working in research focused on disease transmission between non-human primates, humans, and livestock. And he had a project in um, Western Uganda. And we're like, oh, wow. Nightmares are made for gears. Yeah, it was was pretty crazy. And we're like, well, let's go, you know, maybe we'll, we'll, let's, you know, before we embark on this chapter of life where we have kids and we might get locked down a bit more, you know, we decided to go to, to Africa for a month and we did, um, the, the, the entire trip was two weeks in Uganda and two weeks in Tanzania. And it was an amazing experience, but everybody on the trip liked to fish. And we thought, let's have this opportunity. We, we heard about Nile Perch and we heard about Murchison Falls. And we're like, yeah, we're, you know, let's go see if we can carve out some time and and fish for, for Nile Perch. And so the, the first week of the trip, we were in Western Uganda. We got to hang out with chimps, like wild chimps. And it was like just a cool, immersive experience. And the second part of the trip, you know, the, the four of us, it was Sasha and myself and uh, Tony Goldberg and his, then his, his, his um, girlfriend, I believe, or maybe fiance, I can't remember. We took a, um, a land cruiser and we uh, went north. It was like a 
uh, seven or eight hour drive on this dirty, dusty road um, to Murchison Falls. Um, and we heard this is a really good spot. It's the, it's the narrowest spot on the Nile River. So the entire Nile River, it goes from Lake Victoria and then it goes through another lake. I can't remember the name. And then it goes through Murchison Falls, which is like a 20 or 30 foot like crack of rock. The entire Nile River just goes shooting through there. And then it flows downstream into Whatever. lake. Yeah, it's wild. And so we we it was a dirty, dusty, like long drive. There might have been some medical things that happened along the way. That's a different story. Uh, <laughs> but we we got to the top of uh, Merchant Falls, and uh, you know we were we were in dome tents, like we were we we're camping at the top of the falls. It was also like a hippo pool. So during the day. You could go walk down and you sort of wade into the water and you could see all these hippos kind of looking at you and they're pretty, they can be pretty nasty, right? Um, yeah, there's so some of the worst in Africa, those yeah, things. Absolutely. And so like, you know, it, it was just immersing ourselves in that experience apart from the whole Nile Perch thing was just crazy. And so we're in these little dome tents and we, um, you'd have to hike down to the base of the falls um, to fish for Nile perch. And, you know, there were, we had conventional gear and we had fly gear and, you know, it was a relatively new fishery at the time. So we were, you know, exploring it all on our own. Uh, there was a guide that had started to do some work there, but it, it really wasn't totally dialed. We were getting into some fish, uh, on the, on conventional gear at the base of the falls, but then we were looking across like the, as you know, as the water's going through these falls, it's, you know, at the base of the falls, it's just like water's flowing like crazy. There's spray, you know, yeah, full you turbulence. Be, yeah, full turbulence. You can hear like water buffalo. You have to be careful for, you know, crocodiles and like ticks and all sorts of stuff. It was just like crazy. We, we'd fished there for a couple of days and we're like, man, if we only had a boat, we could get to the other side. And you could see these back eddies, these pools are like, there has to be some really cool big Nile perch in there. And so we've, we worked it out with, so just downstream is a, a national park. And we worked it out with some of the rangers where we could, we could get on their boat. And so we, we made it across to the other side and I had a 12, we, the most we had at the time, we didn't think anything more than a 12 weight. So we had 12 weights. And these, um, and I remember having this crazy ass, huge, looked like some, some mutated brush fly with some extra stuff on it. Nile perch can, <laughs> the Nile perch can like, <laughs> the Nile perch can eat anything. Right. And so, and so we, um, we couldn't, um, park the boat close to where these back eddies were occurring. And so we parked downstream and we had to sort of rock hop and not you had to be super careful like not to fall in because there's like no medical facilities nearby if you get in the water you know there's you know we saw hippos we had hippos chase the boat we saw crocodiles we saw you know water buffalo who can they can be super gnarly and yeah, that's a lot of critters on the radar a lot of a lot of critters on the radar after like a long <laughs> arduous drive you right. know, and it, it's uh, it's not like we're used to not being in like um, foreign environments and stressful environments and new places, but it was just a lot all at once. And then I remember 
you know, sort of breaking away from the rest of the group, Sasha prior to that caught this like cool Nile catfish and, you know, there's really crazy other species in there. Um, and, and I was convinced I was going to go up and fish this one back eddy uh, further upstream towards the base of the falls. And it was getting towards, I remember the boat driver was like, you know, we only have so much time left. Um, right. They, they're right, we're running out of daylight and that's when, you know, things come out of the water, things get really dicey. You know, we don't want to be here, you know, after the sun goes down. Right. And I'm like, I, I'd still need to do it. So I, I really, you know, um, worked my way up to this pool and started throwing these casts into this back eddy. And the back eddy itself was fairly contained, but you could see the main stem of the river was just flowing like crazy, right? And so I already knew that like, if I hooked up on a fish in this back eddy, I'd have to try to stop it before yeah. it got into it that. Gets in that current and it's going to be over. Yeah. I knew, I knew the risks. Right. And, and yeah. it was, and, but you know, I, I wanted to take it. I, I had right. made it all this way. I could, I could, you know, as a, as a fisheries biologist, as an angler, I'm like, that's where the fish are going to be. Right. Right. And you know, the sun was starting to go down, you know, I could start hearing the sounds of like, there's birds and all sorts of cool wildlife moments. And, you know, it was the end of a hot day and I was throwing the fly in and I remember making some strips and all of a sudden it was like, oh, I'm stuck on a log. I'm like, crap, you know, like I thought I was hung up and all of a sudden it wasn't, it was like tug, tug. And I was like, I said it, I said it. And I knew I was buttoned up on this fish and all of a sudden, like I was trying to control it in this back eddy and the back eddy wasn't small. Like the, the Nile river is like pretty big. It was a huge back right. eddy. And I'm like, if I got to like, just put the wood to it and bring it back to try to maintain some control and shorten it. And I lost my footing a little bit and I started to slip back and I, I started to lose control of the fish and not keep it in the eddy. And I saw my line go out into a little bit of the main stem. And uh -oh. after, and after that, I was just like, okay, this is when things are going to get kind of nutty. And you know, the Nile perch, um, based on their body form, right. They've got a fairly deep body. So as soon as it got into that current, it was like, this is my ticket out of here. Um, right. And so it started, I was watching, my reel started just flying and I was like cranking the drag down. And I started to um, try to follow this fish. And I was like jumping from rock to rock to rock. And then I got to a point where I couldn't do that anymore. Like I would have just been totally messed, like the risks of falling in and all that were, were just too much. And you know, it's, it's, it's one of these memories, I'll get to the ending of it in a second, but like, it was one of these memories where like, as I'm talking to you right now, I can visually see the back eddy. Like I can, yeah. I can hear the sounds. I can like feel the sweat, like dripping off my face. Like it was such a memorable experience even up until that point. And, and it was, it was so cool. And it's, um, you know, I, I have a few of these like memories that are totally burnt into my mind, but this one's like pretty significant. I know exactly what you're saying. Those ones where you can remember like 
the play-by-play like it had just happened. Yeah, exactly. I, I remember the shirt I was wearing. I remember the rod <laughs> I was carrying. I remember, you know, like I, I remember the time of day. I remember my thoughts like it was just, it was pretty incredible. And, you know, even leading up to this, I, I mentioned, you know, I li- was living in the Bahamas at the time. You know, I I cut my teeth fly fishing for bonefish, right? And so right. up until that point, it was like from 2000 to 2007, the majority of the stuff I was fishing for was bonefish, maybe some barracuda on fly, you know, and then when I'd get back to the mainland, I'd be fishing for trout, right? Um, and so, you know, having this opportunity to fish for something like really big in a really exotic location not that the bahamas isn't exotic but the setting everything was very different you know to to really think about how i needed to control this fish in a in a big river you know all that was playing through my mind as as i was going through this experience i finished the rock hopping i was i knew i was at a dead end and i was like okay i you know i'm trying to crank the drag down and even further and it was done like the reel was smoking it was like an older i think it was an old orvis like bat and kill thing big thing it was like smoking um but never saw a nile perch coming no this reel was not no no no. it was not you know it was a pretty large arbor reel but it was like it was not meant for this um you know it was maybe meant for a big fish but not a big fish in a current that's just exactly peeling away right and so I remember just thinking to myself, like, I, I need to try to just get this, slow this fish down. Um, and downstream, I could see the boat. I could see people converging at the boat and like, they're kind of waiting for me. And I'm like, oh, geez, this is not going to go well. Um, and I'm like, am I actually going to, you know, ultimately get spooled? Like, like right. am I going to, am I going to lose the, am I just going to have to let go of it all? Am I going to explode? Am I going to grab yeah, I was I was fishing like fifty pound, uh, okay. like straight. Which all of a sudden, starts to feel a little bit light. Yeah, it should have been more. Like knowing what I, you know, I've done. I've since then I fished for like GTS and tarpon and right. stuff like that. And like in this environment, like I, I you know, I, I was still I was still relatively naive as a like a, a, a fly angler targeting big things, right? Um, well, it seems it, like a lot compared to everything else that you've been <laughs> Yeah, up until, up until that point, yeah. yeah. Um, and so, you know, I was processing all this, and then I realized that, like, you know, the, the fish was having its way with me. Like, I wasn't having the, it, my way with the fish anymore, right? Like, the fish was in its environment. The, the cool part of where I was standing, I was able to get out onto these rocks which were the dead end because any further down, I was like falling into another pool and I probably would have died or got eaten, whatever. The sun was starting to set and there was the two banks of the Nile were kind of creating a V and you could see like the jungle trees and I could start to hear the sounds and the water buffalo were making their noise and the sun was starting to set right in the middle of the V, right? And it was like this big sort of, red orange orb it was super hazy you know again it's it's so burnt into my memory and it was like coming down and almost just a you know, just above the horizon i knew we were running out of time and i'm like i'm gonna just give this thing one more kind of tug and see if i can bring it back and start to gain a little bit on it and i i gave it a tug uh and all of a sudden 
in the middle of the sun. I see this Nile perch. It was probably about 50 or 60 pounds. It was way in the distance. It was jumping like a largemouth bass. And it came out, <laughs> it came out of the water. And it basically, like, it was in slow motion. It came out of the water and it was just shaking, like, right in front of the sun. And it was oh like, if God. I could, I could, like, I couldn't make this stuff up. Like, it was, it was right in front of the sun. And the sun was like this awesome, peachy, reddy, orange color, you know. And, and I, I watched it jump. And then <laughs> as it reached its pinnacle, I could see my fly just pop out of its mouth. Like it just came, it, it was like the line went slack, you know, yeah. and, and the fish hit the water and, you know, the sun was going down and people at the boat were waving and like for me to get my ass back to the boat, um, you know, and, and the, the, the Nile perch won, you know, and at that point I didn't care. Like the, just the, you know, a part of me did because I really wanted to land that Nile perch on my, yeah. my 12 weight, you know, but we're not the whole... totally like Zen and one with the, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but just the collective experience, like, um, you know, and then I sort of like humbly, like reeled my, reeled my line in the, the hook bent, like it was not, uh, uh, you know, it, what it, it didn't, it wasn't it, uh, this, the jump and the hook. And, you know, at that point I'd never, you know, since then I fished for tarpon. I know to like, you know, let some tension out. When I saw this thing jump, my brain was not there. Um, and so I, you know, but at the, at, at the end of the day, the, the fish won that battle, but I have like an amazing experience of, you know, targeting now perch, um, thinking about the, that, that surrounding and just these memories that are completely burnt into my mind. Like, it was, you know, and that was, that was partway through, you know, there was a, a lot of other cool stuff that happened on that, on that trip that, that wasn't fishing related. Um, but that certainly, um, stood out as, you know, one of these, um, sort of moments in, in life where, you know, it, for me as an angler, um, prior to that, again, I, I haven't targeted big fish on fly. Um, you know, at a certain other chapter in my life, I was like, you know, fishing for big Northern Pike and other things on conventional gear. But, um, to me, that was just like an entryway to like wanting to target big things on fly more like that, yeah, you know, and I love it. it. It totally got well, me going. You know, it was, it was all accounts, Nile perch, especially in moving water from the few people that I have talked to that have experienced that is one of the meanest, hardest fighting fish in fresh, fresh water. <laughs> well, thanks for validating that. Why don't you describe a Nile perch really quick, since I know a lot of our listeners would not be familiar with this fish, Andy. Yeah, Nile perch, uh, it's a freshwater species. It looks like a cross between like a snook and... Man, I don't even know what else. It's um, they have a crazy ass, uh, cool eye, um, that when you shine light on it, it's kind of like this iridescent, like pinky red, and, and that's eat at night a lot with that yes, eye. I exactly. Like. As you see it, you're like, oh, you eat in the dark. Hundred percent, hundred percent, and it so it doesn't, it, you know, it's no surprise that, and that's you know, when we were there, we predominantly fished for them you know, in the morning and at night, right. Dusk and right. dusk and dawn. 
Um, you know, we didn't want to stay too much out at night because of all the critters, but, um, you know, they have, they have a voracious, uh, appetite. They're big predators. Um, you know, there's, there was a commercial fishery for them in Lake Victoria for a long time because of they, they have a super fast growth rate. They get really big. And so, but you know, as with many of the species that are on our planet, if we can put a fly in front of them, we like to target them. Right. So there's that, there's that, there's that emerging sort of um recreational fishery for them and um and and you know i think that yes you can go fish for them in in slack water in you know in in lake victoria and other places um but as i found out the big challenge is fishing for them in moving water right Um, well i think for me you know we were lucky enough to just be in the seychelles and fishing for gts obviously totally different fish right but another situation where you have a big fish, um, not in moving water in this case, other than tidal, but you have coral heads, reef edges, structure problems, and you're on foot. And I think there's a huge difference when you're hooked up to a big fish. You know, usually when you hook a tarpon, if it's a blue water fish, obviously, right? Like they might jump you off and they're going to fight like crazy, but they're not going to go to structure. You're not, you don't have, and you're usually on a skip too, right? And so when you're in these situations where you're on foot and you have this powerful fish and you have a set endpoint where like you have to control this thing (laughs) or you know it's game over, (laughs) it changes the whole dynamic. Because like a lot of guys will land huge tarpon on what? Eight pound test built into the leader, whatever. And you can when you can do that, right? But when you're talking about a pile perch, or, you know, somewhere you're on foot and you have to stop it, then it gets interesting because then you start to really test your fly tackle and what those limits are. You know, something's going to break at some point, right? The hook's going to bend out. The line's going to de-lamb. Like, there's just limits to what you can do. Fishing Stories is brought to you by Lock & Co. Whiskey. Distilled right here in Colorado and finished with hand-cut, charred Colorado Aspen wood discs. This whiskey is as unique as any trout stream. It has now won gold three times in the San Francisco World Spirits competition. You'll want to grab a bottle for your bar at home or to take on your next adventure. Check it out at your local liquor store or at lockandcodedistilling.com. Lock is spelled with an E. The line's going to de-lamb. Like, there's just limits to what you can do. Exactly. Or if you're lucky enough, you win the encounter, right? Uh, you know, it's a similar, it it brings back another, um, another story. I think you're right. I think that, you know, when you're not on a boat, when you're on foot and there's structure and there's fish that want to, you know, bury themselves in structure, or there's obstacles in place that you have to navigate around, whether you as angler have to navigate and dance around, or you have to guide the fish around angler or around the structure, or there's some fish that, uh, you know, like to bury themselves in structure because that's where they came from. Right. You know, just coming back from Australia, you know, in um, in January or February um, when we were fishing for Murray cod, you know, right. it's a crazy, crazy species. Kind of uh, Nile-esque in their shape, those things to me. They have a little bit of that flat, you know, head like yep. a snook, but then also really thick and wide like a Nile perch like that. Exactly. I mean, kind of similar in some ways. But way more, but way more ambushy. Like it was, it was pretty crazy. You know, we, we had an opportunity to fish for, um, 
for Murray cod in a, in a Clearwater river. Um, and you know, the, the, they didn't get, you know, we can see pictures of Murray cod where they get really big and they, they're right. dumping over people's arms. You know, the biggest fish that we caught was maybe about like 75 centimeters, whatever that is, two and a half feet. Um, for yeah. those people not familiar with the metric system. Um, <laughs> anyway, but the way, the way they would hit a fly. So you're, it's all doing short cast and these Murray cod just come up and they slam it and they want to go straight back to structure. Right. So you, you have to like really try to stop them and control it. And, and if you don't, you're doomed. Like you're, you're either, right. you know, you're trying to dive down and fish out the fit, you know, navigate the fish <laughs> out of it. But, but I think that it, you know, I, I think you touched on something really interesting there in terms of the different tactics and strategies that we have to use as anglers, um, right. whether we're on a boat or whether we're on foot, right. And depending on right. the obstacles and, and how the fish behave. Right. And I think that's where it goes back to something that you mentioned earlier about like this inquisitiveness of, of anglers, right? We have to be knowledgeable of their movement patterns and their habitat and all that stuff. One, to be successful, to be able to throw the right fly in front of them to convince them to eat. And then two, to figure out how they're going to behave, how they're going to move so that we can compensate what we're doing as anglers to like get one to hand right so and with new species it's always harkening back to like well this reminds me a little bit of the way i fished for xyz and so you kind of take yeah. your previous knowledge just like any good scientist you know take your <laughs> yeah. previous knowledge, adapt it to the situation but yeah I, I i'm a i'm a strong proponent i think anglers uh test hypotheses all the time like we exactly. we use we use a scientific approach right because and you test a hypothesis, you have a prediction, your prediction's wrong, you adapt and you test a new hypothesis, right? right yeah. um, you know, and you need to know about the fish's migration patterns and you need to know what they're preying on and you need to know where they are in the water column or whether you should even go fishing or not because they might not be there or they might be spawning, you know? So, um, you know, I think that's the, you know, part of the reason I think that, you know, you know I got into this profession is like, you know, in, in addition to loving being having this, this passion to, to, to go fishing, you know, I just love watching fish. I love being in their environment. Yeah. A lot of times when I start a new uh, research project in a new location, one of the first things I do is I put a mask on my face and jump in the water, whether it's cold yeah. or warm. And I'm just like, I want to see what the fish sees. Like, I want to get a sense of their environment. I want to get a sense of, you know, what they're preying on, you know, what the habitat's like, you know, and I do that as a scientist, but I do it selfishly as an angler. I'm like, okay, yeah. I know what's in the way, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Like, <laughs> well, knowing you and Sasha, now that you do have kids, I feel like you guys are going to take your kids Nile perch fishing one of these days. I think so. I think it's on the list. Um, we uh we had we had the opportunity so our kids came along to australia and you know they they got to fish for um so my my son is uh 15 and my daughter's turning 12 in june you know and they they got to fish for trout in tasmania and they got to fish for now per or not from not for murray cod in in australia and man they crushed it you know and it, they're they're i i'm 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 glad that based on the work that I do, I'm able to share these experiences with my kids because, um, you know, if they develop a deep connection 
you know, whether they go on and hopefully not become biologists because there's not a lot of money in it, I hate to tell you. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, if they, if they go on, you know, in their lives and, and have this deep connection to fish and the environment, then they'll become those advocates for protecting watersheds and the planet and all that other stuff. So, um, you know, it's, it's, it's neat to, to be able to pass on those experiences and, and hopefully they have the, the same philosophies or at least, um, you know, go into a situation with their eyes wide open and they understand that, you know, we can't keep, it's not business as usual in terms of what we're doing to our fish and aquatic ecosystems. Like we gotta, we gotta be a little bit careful about the stuff we put in our water and the habitats we destroy and all that stuff. So if, if I, if they can carry that on, then that's all good. I have faith that they will with I you guys. So. <laughs> um, while we have you here, yeah. Just based on your resume, I have a couple of just personal questions based on some fish that we've discussed on this podcast at length. And the first we touched on, and that's GTs. I mentioned we were just in the Seychelles and talking to our guides there. They said, based on some of the studies that they'd heard, the average home range for a GT there was about a square kilometer. <laughs> yeah. Is that something you're like familiar with? Do you have any knowledge <laughs> you said there? And like, where do those things spawn? Do we they, know? They, they were repeating uh, stats from the project in Alphonse. So I have a big project. Uh, back in 2018, uh, we started a big uh, telemetry project looking at movement patterns of GTs in the Alphonse Island group. Um, so we set up a whole bunch of receivers. We surgically implanted transmitters in GTs. Uh, we had a ton of input from the guides in terms of their hypotheses, in terms of what they thought about movement patterns between the different atolls and, you know, things about GTs maybe becoming hook shy and sensitivities yeah. over time. And so what we were able to do, so we ended up tagging like 75 GTs and uh, over the course of the study, we're able to look at their core use areas and their home ranges. And it's true, like, you know, 50% of the time, they're probably within, you know, a kilometer or two. Like, so you're ended up targeting the same GTs. Um, and that came to question, or that's, that's what brought to question this idea of sensitivities. Like if you're, if you're targeting that same area, you know, week over week, week by week by week, are those GTs becoming more sensitive? And, you know, at the same time, we're also doing some pit tagging. So it's like the chips that you put in your cat or your dog. Um, we're also putting those tags in GTs and all the guides have uh, scanners so you can tell whether the GT has been recaptured or not. So we're using a couple different techniques to understand the movement patterns and the recapture rates. And, and actually the recapture rates uh, aren't as high as you think. And which means it provides an indication that the population, at least in the Alphonse Island group, that there's a lot of GTs. So yeah. even though even though there's they, the the ones that we tagged may have a relatively small home range, a kilometer or two, there's a lot of fish in that area. So it's this delicate balance between like the sensitivity and the desensitization or the sensitization to having a fly thrown at you all the time versus the sheer number of GTs that are there. Um, and we're still analyzing, we, uh, that we just downloaded the receivers, um, our collaborative group did, um, in, uh, I think it was March and we're analyzing the data because we had an opportunity. It was kind of a natural experiment when COVID hit, 
right? We were able, we were tracking fish through this period where the fishing just shut down, right? Right. They're not People, getting the angling. They're pressure not getting off. the angling pressure. So we're 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 in the process of analyzing the data to look at whether the movement patterns of GTs changed when there was zero angling pressure. Um, and the the folks at the Alphonse Fishing Company um, were also really cool. We had this planned in the study before COVID in that we did a sort of a before after study where we actually, uh, we tagged all the fish and partway through the time series, we closed a number of the beats. Um, and so that was our sort of precursor to like COVID. We're like, okay, how are we going to look at whether GTs change their movement patterns based on angler traffic? So we, we worked with, with Keith and the Alphonse Fishing Company to, to close some beats and then reopen them to look at whether the movement patterns changed at that time. So we have that part of the experiment. And then we had COVID hit. Um, so we have actually have another layer of experiment on top of that. So all that data will be coming out or is available and we're cranking through that analysis now. So um, that's fascinating. It's, I it's, mean, it's pretty neat. My, my perception, and you tell me what you think of this, is that, okay, if you think about a GT's home range being a square kilometer or two, right? Yeah. On any of these atolls, that square kilometer or two has to include deep water off of the reef edge, right? That's part of their habitat range. And the set of circumstances in which we're targeting GT on fly is a very specific set where you have a fish you can see on a shallow reef or it's up on a ray. Maybe you're popping in some deeper interior reef, but usually you're sight fishing to these fish in shallow water. And my perception is that that's a very small percentage of the GTs that are in that range to your point of there being a lot, right? Yep. And yep. most of them are in that deeper water. So you could be cycling through which fish are coming up shallow on a ray yep. out of a very big pool that's sitting in that deep water and actually not be fishing at the same fish on a ray very often at all. Yeah, 100%. 100%. And, yeah, and, and, it, and it changes seasonally, right? And so um, right. thinking about what happens early in the season, versus later in the season before the, in the, in the Seychelles with for the Southeast monsoon and the winds pick up, you know, all that plays into um, what influences their movement patterns, how fish are cycled on and off of the, uh, uh, the flats, you know, from deeper right. water. Um, so cool. it's, yeah. Do you know where they spawn or how they spawn? Well, uh, the, we believe that they go to offshore pinnacles um, to spawn. Uh, but the movement patterns of that study uh, really haven't identified that. So uh, I'll have to dig in. It's a good question. I'll dig into the literature. I think there has been a little bit of work done on spotting patterns of GTs, but um, right off the top of my head, I can't, I can't pick that. I, I can't that. remember. Maybe more research required. We'll just have to catch more, tag more. <laughs> yeah. If you need somebody to try to stick a couple to put a tags in, just remember. <laughs> okay. So just keep <laughs> no that factored in. <laughs> yeah, good. All right. The other species that I'm very curious about is Golden Dorado, oh, which yeah. we fished for a couple of times in the Bolivian system through the yep. Samane Lodges with untamed angling. Yeah. And that's a fish that fascinates me because they seem to be migratory seasonally somewhat, but there's always some adult fish in the system. The guides all seem to have a different theory of how far they go, where they go, what they do. Yeah. I'm very curious if you have any thoughts on that situation. 
there's there's been very few tagging studies uh if if any on golden dorado um so that the study that that i did back in it was like 2014 in terms of my lab we were in um on the salta river um and looked at the how um, golden dorado respond to catch and release and we did some short-term radio tagging um and to show what happens when you release a golden dorado how it gets displaced downstream and then how it swims back up close to where it was captured we see that a lot in fish but it wasn't really looking at at long-term uh movement patterns like seasonal migration patterns i do have another golden dorado project happening right now though um, and it actually came about from questions uh, from Marcelo and, and also a few other people about how different are the Golden Dorado, you know, in Bolivia versus Argentina versus Brazil. Um, yeah. And, and, and we then talked to him at length about this because, you know, he, as I'm sure you know, feels like maybe the Bolivian subspecies or species has some legitimate differences from the Argentine, yep. you know. And, and so, so a lot of times, maybe this is a step back. A lot of times I get approached by, by recreational anglers and lodge owners and guys are like, we want to know about movement patterns. We need to tag some fish. Um, and the, the environment and the, the sort of the human capacity has to be set up properly in order to do that. Right. And so, right. In this particular case, in the neotropical region, you know, uh, there isn't a good, isn't good capacity yet to do a lot of tracking and telemetry. Um, but so when, when we started to have these questions about movement and connectivity of the populations, we came to the table with a different tool using genetics and genomics um, to look at how related the you know, the fish in the Parana River are to the fish in the Salta, to the fish that are up in Bolivia. And to right. look at the level of relatedness, and it's called population structure, and to look at how they're, they're genetically structured, and then also to look at what things like dams might be doing to breaking up the populations, to basically fragment the populations. To me, this is a, a, a pretty important precursor to maybe the next study that would focus on movement patterns and do some telemetry and do some tagging. Um, but so we, we kind of, we used a different tool and we're using a different tool that that data is also being analyzed. And a cool part of it is actually um, uh, we've, um, we've mapped the genome for, um, for Golden Dorado. Um, oh, that's awesome. So to be able to go into extreme depth in terms of, genes that are uh, are affected by fragmentation or how there's different gene um, expression between these different populations will allow us to answer some of the questions that Marcelo has. Like, is this a different yeah. subspecies? How different is it? Right. Um, you know, do we have to manage these populations um, separately or is it more collectively right. in terms of how we take care of Golden Dorado? Um, and so, you know, I, I have been approached by other groups that want to do tagging. And I think that it does and to look at migration and movement patterns, especially in the Parana River. Um, there's, right. some, there's some groups that are, have approached me to, to that want to do that. Um, but for me as a scientist, this is where I kind of lead back to 
a lot of the anglers and lodge owners and guides are like, let's start with a hypothesis. Like, what is your question? Tagging for the sake of tagging is, is a lot of money that we don't know where that's going to go and, right. and time and effort. So, um, you know, I, I think that, and, and this is what I try to do with a lot of my education and outreach, you know, when I'm giving presentations at angling clubs or talking to lodge owners, I'm like, you have all these great questions or you have, you, you're so passionate about these species. They, they, they are important to the environment. They fuel the economy. They're supporting your lodge, you know, and if you, you have this passion to conserve them, you know, are there specific questions related to stuff that you're seeing in the environment that we could use to structure a scientific study so that you can right. adequately test the hypotheses so that you're not having these big, you know, uh, you know, to do a, a um, maybe put it another way, to do a comprehensive study on movement patterns in Golden Dorado, it would cost a crap ton of money and <laughs> yeah. involve a lot of people and a lot of coordination. Yeah. You know, right. and so, so you know, to, to embark on that would be risky, um, and it, and you at the end of the day, it might not necessarily answer the questions that right. you want to address, right? And right. so, I um, mean, my question with that fish on the Bolivia specific is like, is this protected area actually protect this population, or does their spawning and juvenile rearing actually? take them or happen way downstream in areas that aren't as protected and that need a lot more focus because you yep. have this really pristine area that we're lucky enough to be able to fish. But if these things are coming from long downstream, all of a sudden that area does not have the same protections. Yep. You know? you, Gar Garrison, you, you, you nailed it right on the head by asking that question. So when we when in my mind, when it comes to fish conservation, you have to have multiple tools in the toolbox, right? And right. Pr protected areas are one of them, right? And, right. you know, that that a protected area might work for a species that has relatively short movements in its life history from the time that it's born to the time that it dies. If it's, right. if it, if it spends all its life in the protected area, then you're, then it's probably going to be helpful. But if it's right. migrating out, that's when you have to bring other management tools to the, to the table. Um, right that you know you could do everything possible to protect them when they're in the in the in the reserve but if they go out and all of a sudden they're netted and overfished then the value of that reserve goes down right um, yeah totally. and and we have to think about how reserves though and protected areas in general both freshwater and marine protected areas you know they're they're set up to protect habitat and all the species inside um, and so you know in terms of uh, the protected area in Bolivia, you know, it might be working really well for many of the species in there, but for golden Dorado, maybe not. Right. And that's right. where you, we have to have bring other agencies to the table. It's the same stuff. I know we, we tried to get on for the, uh, to do this recording last week, but I was in St. Croix tagging tiger sharks. It's the exact same question that we're addressing there. Nothing to do with <laughs> recreational fisheries, but you know, we, um, this is in Buck Island National Buck Island Reef National Monument. We'd had some shark studies there before, and we showed that tiger sharks were spending like fifty percent. You think of tiger sharks, huge, highly migratory yeah. um, species. They spend like fifty percent of their time in this protected area, and, and which is crazy, right? And so, and we're even the satellite tags. 
and so we need to think about what's the value of this protected area? Is it something to do with the food? Probably because there's like sea turtles there and they eat sea turtles. Um, but like we watched one smoke a sea turtle on the flats when we were at Alphonse, and it was a sight to see. Also, <laughs> yeah. how fast a sea turtle can move when it's being chased by a tiger shark, but yeah, not, tiger shark not fast enough. In this <laughs> yeah, exactly. It to watch. But but it's it's that question of like you know protected areas have value, uh, but right. it, it really leads back into like understanding the movement patterns of the species that you're interested in across its entire lifespan. To figure right. out, like, is this is this protected area going to satisfy the conservation needs throughout its life, or do we have to have other, you know, harvest restrictions or other things outside yeah, of the protected we, area? Yeah, we have to know the life history in order to know how to deal with it. Hundred percent, hundred percent. Yeah, I love it. Well, this has been so much fun. Yeah, we appreciate all your knowledge, and of course, <laughs> the fun. I mean, it's just fascinating because we like you love to just experience new things and see new places and i want to keep this going for hours i love hearing this stuff it's so fascinating well we could always do a part two because we've also spent time we you know, yeah we, we spent time in in uh i know you spent a lot of time in patagonia yeah. um you know there's some cool stuff going on down there um, I, I have a, uh, another awesome experience with, uh, with golden Masir in India. Um, so you should definitely put that on your list too. It's okay. Great. All right. You've heard it here first. Part two will be coming down the line. <laughs> so stay tuned. Well, thank you, Andy. We'll let you get back to your day. Yeah. You're welcome. It. It's been a pleasure. Thanks guys. Thanks. Cheers. Bye.